We're in the book of Exodus. We've been going through this uh, series called Deliverance in Exodus. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about, we're going to get into the plague narrative. And this is how it's going to go. I'm going to, I'll give a little intro into the characters of, uh, the main characters so far in the story. We'll get into the plague narrative. We'll talk a little bit about what the plague narrative means, like um, what it tells us about God. And then we'll eventually land on the way of Jesus. How, um, how like this, this text here sometimes can be difficult and, and, and squaring this with the life and the ministry of Jesus, if we're really honest. It's like, what do I do with these plague narratives and the life of Jesus? Because I'm a Christian. The only way, unless you're Jewish, that you get to Exodus is through Jesus. So how... How do I look at this and respond to this as a follower of Jesus? And that's what we'll try to do today. So um, let me read the end of chapter 6. I'll start in verse uh, 28 and then read the first part of chapter 7. And then I'll pray. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with flattering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. You are to say everything um, I put in your mouth. Your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt... In Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 when the Lord spoke to, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let's pray. God, I, I pray tonight that you would give us um, ears to hear. Uh, I, I know, Lord, as we get into this text, I sometimes have this, uh, I vacillate between just knowing how truly um, loving you are and that also part of your love is, has anger and wrath in it. And I get that sometimes. Uh, I get that where it's easy to receive and other times it's harder to receive. And so I know for my brothers and sisters here tonight, I know sometimes for us it's, it's, it can get hard to receive this sort of teaching or this sort of message about the plagues and how you would um, pour out your judgment on, on a nation like this. And so would you give us uh, faith and the eyes of faith to see your character through this? Um, I ask for your help that you would anoint me by your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. God, in Jesus' strong name, amen. Amen. This last week in the San Francisco Chronicle, there was an article uh, announcing the play Jesus Christ Superstar with an all-female cast. Um, It's affectionately called Hashtag Jesus. um, And the article opened by saying this. Say what you want about the Bible, the author writes, but its character development isn't that great. The holy book's central figures are less real people than abstractions. They're defined by one or a few actions rather than their internal lives. And so you come to a book like Exodus, you wonder, is this true? Do we find in the Exodus narrative characters shallow and lacking real emotions, the real emotions of real people with deep, rich inner lives? But if you actually take 
Exodus seriously and you study this, the, the book seriously, you see that it's the, it's the interior, the rich interior lives of the main characters that actually drive the Exodus plot forward. You have God, who's obviously the main character, not only of the Bible, but of Exodus. And he does make a late appearance in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, he finally shows up. And we learn that he sees Israel like a firstborn son. He has affection for Israel, who's in bondage, who's being held captive and, and is being abused. And he looks at Israel as a firstborn son. And he's had it, he's had it with the way that Pharaoh has been treating his child. And he wants to rescue his people. He wants to bring them into a good land. He wants, he wants them to be in a land with no bondage. He wants them to be in a land that flows with milk and honey. He wants them to be in a land where they can freely worship him and that he can live an intimate relationship with them. God wants to live with his people. And that drives the whole narrative forward. That gets him involved in the Exodus account. It gets him involved in the story. I want to live with my people and they're under the rule of a tyrannical person. See, in this you see God's heart. In this, we see what the Exodus is all about. It's about deliverance. It's about freedom. It's about intimacy. God living in intimacy with his people. This is why we're taking our time studying this book in this, this, this year. Our, our, our pastoral hope this year is cultivating intimacy with God. And sometimes for that to happen, God has to go after the things in our own lives that are keeping us from intimacy. This is exactly what we see in the Exodus story. God desires his people to be free to know him, unfettered by oppression in any forms. He wants to walk with his people. He wants to live with his people. And he's driven to action. This sort of internal, these, this interior life of I want to live with my people, I want them to be free, drives him to action. God lets them know a little later in the story how he feels about them. Uh, in Leviticus, the next book over, he says this. This is how God feels. During the Exodus account, this is how God feels. He says, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is God's heart. Like, I, I want to live with you. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. I completely freed you, and I allowed you to walk. Not as, you're no longer in bondage. You can walk with heads held high. This is what's going on in God's interior life. And there's only one thing that stands before his people and their freedom, and that's Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh is this tyrannical leader filled with irrational fear. And this is like the most dangerous kind of person. This is the most dangerous kind of leader. Irrational fear. He thinks that these Hebrew people are going to spring up and become so, uh, so many people that they're going to overthrow his kingdom. And so this Pharaoh will eventually sponsor a statewide genocide of all male-born Hebrew babies, having them all drowned in the Nile River. And, you know, the irony isn't lost here, for the Nile River is the uh, symbolized life to the Egyptian people. And this is what God says about this madman when he calls Moses to confront him. This is what God says. He says, I know that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, will not let you go. You're going to go up to him, you're going to say, let my people go, and I know he won't let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So you know what I'll do? I'll stretch out my hand, and I will strike with, uh, with all, I will strike him with all the wonders, and I will perform among them. After that, and only after that, will he let you go. He will only let you go after I stretch out my hand and strike him with a mighty hand. 
The clear, the clear implication of these words is that, that the man is possessed, that Pharaoh is possessed with a ruthless and stubborn character and is devoid of all compassion. And Pharaoh will eventually yield, but reluctantly, and only under compulsion of an overwhelming force. And the idiom that the narrative uses to describe the interior life of Pharaoh is that Pharaoh has a hard heart. This is, this is said over and over again, um, and this is an important clue into, into Pharaoh's interior life. Pharaoh has a hard heart. The heart in the Hebrew Scriptures is the controlling center of human actions. It's the seat of the interior life. Someone's thoughts, someone's intellectual activity, and their effective aspects of their personality are all regarded as issuing from the heart. And so what they think, someone's thoughts, the way they act, all of that issues from their heart. And, and what God says about Pharaoh is that his heart is hard. The state of one heart defines the essential character of a person. So the Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna says, hard heart connotes the willful suppression of the capacity for reflection. When someone does not have self-examination, he says, for self-examination, for unbiased judgment about good and evil. In short, the hardening of the heart becomes synonymous with the numbing of the soul, a condition of moral atrophy. <clears throat> this is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is so hard that he doesn't stop for self-examination. He never, he never checks his own judgments about good and evil. He has no moral compass. He has, his soul is shriveled. His heart is hardened. In the middle of this ruthless, stubborn man and this compassionate, determined God lies this unconfident leader, Moses. So you have this tyrannical, unself-reflective ruler, Pharaoh. You have this God that's full of compassion, full of even anger that his people are being su suppressed. And in the middle of these two is this leader, Moses, who is unconfident, a leader who's paralyzed with doubt. Moses tries to get out of his call. God calls Moses by the burning bush, we learned a few weeks ago. And in that, he keeps on using excuses to get out. He says, God, I've never been eloquent. That's, what, that's the excuse he uses. And by eloquent, what he means is, he's never been a commanding presence. What he's telling God, when God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh, you're going to say, let my people go. He's like, no, 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 God, I, I can't do it. I've never been eloquent, meaning I, he grew up in royalty, but he knows I've grown up in royalty, but my, my presence has never been commanded. I've never walked into a room and filled the room with my presence. You know, those, there's these leaders that can walk into a room and you feel their presence in the room. You know that they're a leader as soon as they walk in. Moses is like, I've never, ever had that. When I fill a room, I have to get everyone's attention. Hi, I'm here. Hi. Like, no, I'm not a powerful leader. I've never been, I never will be a powerful leader, God. I can't do this. And then next he says, and I'm slow of speech and tongue. He says, I'm not a good speaker. And being not a good speaker has haunted me all of my life, he says. I'm afraid to stand in front of people and talk, and there's no way I'll stand in front of Pharaoh and talk. Not only does my presence not command itself when I walk into a room, it doesn't fill a room. Not only that, but I can't, I'm not a good speaker, I don't talk good. I can't do it. And so God finally says to him, listen, I created your tongue. I've called you. I'll be with you. I'll do this. Now go. And then Moses finally gets down to listen. He says, God, could you, could you send someone else? Like he finally gets to it. He's like, 
God, I'm not, I'm not playing hard to get here. I'm not going, no, send someone out. Like, I literally don't want to go. I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to go. And finally, this is where God gets mad. God gets angry at Moses. He's like, Moses, listen, you're going, and you can take Aaron, but you are going. And finally gets Moses to agree, and when Moses goes, it's not successful. Things don't get better. They get worse. Now everyone's mad at Moses. The Hebrew slaves are mad at Moses because they're working harder. The Pharaoh's mad at Moses because he's asking him stupid questions like, can you let my people go? This is where Moses takes it personally. He began his ministry by saying, God, I have three fears. I don't want to follow you because Pharaoh will laugh at me. The Hebrew people won't believe me at all, and I'm not a really good leader. I'm a poor speaker. My presence does not command respect. And all of those things came true. Like, there's nothing more scary than when you know your worst fears about yourself and all, every single one of them comes true. And you've told nobody about them, but maybe God. God is the only one that knows your fears. And you step in and every single one of your fears comes true. And Moses even has like, I told you so moment with God. In Exodus chapter 6, in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites don't listen to me, I told you they wouldn't, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? He's like, I, I, I told you this when we were at the bush, man. Like we were taught, we were there, and I said I was not good at this. And then again in verse 30, he says, Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? See, I think the, the chronicle writer might have it wrong. It's the rich developed interior lives of these characters that drives the plot forward. It's the rich interior life of Pharaoh and his, and his shallowness, his hollowness. He has no moral compass. Moses, who is like, I, I don't know how to obey God. I don't know if I can do this. And God's like, I will get my people out of here. All this sets up how, what comes next, and it's how will God deliver these people? And the answer is this. Verse, chapter 7, verse 2, it says, God, this is how I want you to deliver the people, Moses. I want you to say everything I command you. Your brother, Aaron, is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites out of this country. And then it says in verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. God says to Moses, Moses, I know you're afraid. I know you don't think that you have what it takes. <clears throat> I know Pharaoh is an insane person. And I know how to deal with him. And here's what you're to do. You're to obey me. Obey me, and you will see deliverance. See, God begins to deliver Israel from bondage through Moses and Aaron's obedience to him. Let me define for you what obedience means. Obedience means doing what God says. You might write, want to write that down. <clears throat> That's about as profound as it'll get tonight. Doing what God says. Now, that's kind of funny, but it's also kind of, that's exactly what obedience means. You don't have to add all kinds of fun definitions to that. It simply means what does God tell you to do? What does God call you to do? What has God given you to do? What is, the, what is the thing that God has placed upon your life to be and to do, and you do those things? And Moses had to learn this, and, and there was a, a principal progression here. Not in obedience. Moses obeyed right away, but there was a principle of progression and confidence. 
Moses grew confident in the Lord. You will see as the plagues progress, Moses grows in confidence with God through every single act of obedience. And this is so important in the movement, uh, in the, this is an important movement in the life of a leader. When you move from self-confidence, sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror or we look at ourselves when we are faced with all the things that we're faced with and we can inflate ourselves with pride. And we can think, I was made for this. This is my moment. I can kill this. I'm a boss. I can do this sort of thing. And you inflate yourself with pride. The other side of us knows ourselves really well. We, we might be really, really self-aware. And we know that we are completely inadequate. So we kind of vacillate. When we have self-confidence, we vacillate between inflated with pride or crippled with inadequacy. And this is exactly where Moses teetered between. And he he often fell towards the side of, I can't do this. At the beginning, he's like, I can do this. He ended up murdering someone. And at the end, he's like, I can't do this at all. And he had to move to a God confidence that grows with every act of obedience. And the only way God confidence, or uh, the book of Joshua calls this being strong in the Lord, the only way this grows is through obedience, is that we're obedient in every single way that God's called us to be obedient. And through that obedience, we gain a confidence in God that like, oh, I might be inadequate, but God is enough. Or I might not know what I'm doing, but God does. That God can use broken vessels. That God can use me, even though I am not the most powerful presence and even though I don't talk good. God can use me still. This is, this is and we only grow in this through obedience. And obedience actually leads to the first showdown between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. Now, this first showdown that we're going to read in Exodus 7 um, is presented as a general introduction to the plague narrative, announcing all of the most important theological themes. So what we'll do now is we're going to go through this and then just a couple plagues and then some closing thoughts. So look at chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Okay, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it would become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Now God here anticipates Pharaoh testing of Moses and their capacity to perform. He will go, he, he, God knows that as soon as they get in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh will almost flippantly say to them, hey, do a miracle. Show me something extraordinary to know that, so I know that you're more than not just some political figure trying to ask me for a favor. Show me that you're powerful. Show me that you're someone, that you deserve to be in my presence. And when he does that, what I want you to do is I want you to take your staff, which is a symbol of authority, and I want you to throw it down in front of him, and it's going to become a snake. Now, this isn't your garden variety snake. It wasn't like, oh, look at this cute snake. This word snake is the Hebrew word tanim. And the word tanim is the word sea monster. I wish they would just say sea monster instead of snake. Because that's way cooler of a thing. You're reading, throw it on your staff and it becomes a sea monster. <laughs> now, um, now, the reason why it's a sea monster, this, this, by the way, this word tanim shows up all over the Hebrew scriptures. It's just a fascinating word. See, the, the sea in, uh, in, in Hebraic thought, in Jewish thinking, the sea was an untamed, chaotic thing. And the sea monster is a picture of, a symbol of chaos, the sea monster. 
Otherwhere in Scripture, it's known as the sea dragon or the great dragon. Later on in Revelation, it picks up the same idea, the dragon. Or it's called Leviathan, if you've ever seen this in the Old Testament. This, is a, this, this speaks of chaos. So what it means is that God, when, when, when Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes Tanim, a sea monster, what God is saying is this, I'm going to unleash chaos. I'm going to unleash, unleash chaos monster all over Egypt, all over your well ordered realm where you have your slaves doing what you want them to do. You have your pyramids being built. You have doing all these things. I'm going to unleash chaos on your entire gig right now. But then Pharaoh summoned his own wise men. And when it says magicians and sorcerers, think of this. Think of uh, um, Egypt being the most technologically advanced society at this time. And he's calling in all of his top scientists, all of his top technicians, all of his top thinkers, he's pulling in all these people. And so they pull, he pulls them all and all his own wise men. Look at verse 11. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one of them threw down his staff, and it became a snake. Bam. Okay, you're like, oh, that sucks. Like we thought we had our corner market on the sea monster thing. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Pharaoh knows how to unleash chaos in his own realm, right? He's done this through the suppression and genocide of the Hebrew people. He knows how to bring his own, his own form of chaos. He's like, oh, you got chaos? I, can got, I got chaos too. But look what happens next, verse 12. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. How do you like that? Aaron's staff, Aaron's serpent, Aaron's um, um, tanim swallows up theirs. And as soon as that happened... Pharaoh's heart became hard, angry, and would not listen to them. Even though clearly, like, oh, yeah, I could do that too. Oh, yeah, we just ate all your snakes. At that moment, Pharaoh was like, oh, whoa, okay, I'm messing with someone here. I shouldn't be messing with. Okay, you guys can go. But he's like, you know what? You're not going to beat me. I'm not going to lose to you. I will not let you go. I'm going to bear down harder. I'm going to squeeze harder. The contrast is staged between Yahweh and Pharaoh, and it almost ends in a stalemate. Almost. And this, by the way, this is how the plague narratives go at the very beginning. They almost all end in stalemates. You can imagine Moses watching Aaron throw down a snake, throw down the, the, the staff and it becomes a snake, and Moses is like, yes. And then the scientists throw down their snakes, and he's like, dang it. And it's almost a stalemate. But both sides produce monsters, but it won't be a stalemate because the chaos produced by Israel overpowers the chaos sanctioned by Pharaoh. The swallowing is an ominous threat to the order of the empire. Yahweh will unleash a disorder beyond the control of the empire. This is what it's saying. Yahweh will unleash such a chaos in Egypt that no one will be able to control it. And that's exactly what happens. The following five chapters, God unleashes such a chaos upon Egypt in the form of plagues that, they, that Pharaoh finally buckles and says, let my, you, can, you can go now. The first plague is Nile River turns into blood. The whole river turns into blood. Everything starts dying, and everything stinks. Pharaoh doesn't relent. Second plague, frogs everywhere. I'm going to be honest with you. I would have called it at frogs. <laughs> I'm out at frogs, okay? Frogs everywhere. There's even, uh, there's even like, they said there was like, frogs in their oven. Like, there was very descriptive of all where the frogs will be living. <laughs> I would be out. So frogs everywhere. Um, Pharaoh goes, you know, okay, fine, pray that the Lord takes away the frogs. 
Frogs go away. He doesn't relent. Next plague, gnats. Gnats everywhere take over everything. Okay, fine, I relent, but he doesn't. Next, flies. Flies everywhere. Flies, then death of livestock. All the livestock die. And this right here is when God starts to distinguish between Egypt and Israel. The first few plagues terrorize everyone, even Egypt. I mean, even Israel. They're like, hello, God, we don't want more frogs. Like, I don't, we don't want frogs. We don't want gnats. But the death of the livestock, there starts to be distinguishing. All of Israel is saved from this plague. The boils, same thing. All Egypt gets boils. Hail, same thing. Hail is not touched where Israel's camping. Locusts, same thing. God starts to distinguish between them. And there's darkness. And there's the death of the firstborn. A few notes on this. These plagues here on the screen are intense ecological warf- warfare against Pharaoh and his empire designed to bring Pharaoh to his knees and bring freedom to his people. But also this, the plagues are revelation. The plagues are revelation. They are not done in private, but they're done for the whole world to see. God continually says through the plagues, I want you to know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, and I am with my people, and you will free my people. They will be free. They tell us in no uncertain terms who God is and what he can do and what he's doing about his people who are oppressed. So by studying the plagues, we learn who God is. So let's zoom in on two of the plagues uh, to see the development of the narrative. And this might be a weird thing, but my favorite plague is the frogs. So let's talk about the frogs for a second. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Now, first off here, throughout the plague narratives, God gives Pharaoh a chance to get out of his judgment by letting the people go. Several times, more times than not, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, okay, so the worst thing in the world is about to happen to your land, and you can stop it if you relent. You can, this won't happen to you if you let my people go. But if you don't, this will happen. What we see here is God's mercy is always in the midst of his judgment. Even the worst of the plagues the death of the firstborn. By the way, the death of the firstborn, um, God is doing, Yahweh is doing to Pharaoh what Pharaoh did to Egypt or to Israel, right? So Pharaoh was killing the, the sons of Israel, and God's like, I will now take your firstborn son. However, God is like Pharaoh, except he's not like Pharaoh. He's like, and, but there's a way out. That's the Passover. And he allows a way out through the Passover. Everyone whose house has sacrificed the Passover land, I will pass over your house. And so these, God always, in God's judgment, God always makes a way of escape. God always makes a way of mercy in the midst of his judgment. This is who God is. God is a God who definitely enacts justice. God is a God who brings judgment for sure, but always there's mercy. Verse 3 through 7. So it says, um, the Nile will team with frogs. They will come into your, this is where it's super descriptive, and they will come into your palace, in your bedroom, onto your bed, into your houses of your officials and on your people and in your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. And then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with a staff and over the streams and the canals and the ponds and make frogs come out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron did that and frogs came up everywhere. Verse seven, look at verse seven. 
But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and they also made frogs. Okay. That's not helpful at all. (laughs) If there are millions of frogs, and you just make more frogs, if I lived in Egypt, I'd be like, that makes no sense at all. It kind of reminds me of the App Store, how the App Store has all these apps, and they just make more of the same. Like, this isn't helpful for anyone. Like, when this is that thing when all our technology that we're making... Uh, isn't really making our lives better. We're just adding more frogs. Like we're just adding more stuff, more distraction, more noise, more mess. And sometimes we think that's the cure, right? Just more chaos, more distraction. But they can't, they, they, they only add. They don't take away. They can't even remove the frogs. They can't take them away. So Pharaoh finally concedes. They can only add frogs. They can't take frogs away. And he must now ask Moses to ask God for him, what he cannot do to him, for him, what he can't do for himself, remove the frogs. Look at verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord. Okay, talk to your God, take away the frogs, and from me, my people, and I will let you go. And you can go out offer sacrifices to the Lord. And so Moses says, are you, promise? And then Pharaoh says, promise. And he's like, when? And then Pharaoh says, tomorrow. He's like, done. So Moses goes, prays. The very next day, all the frogs were gone. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the plagues. The only time this finally ends is after darkness and death. Pharaoh thinks, and this is where you should pay attention because I think this is very applicable to us. Pharaoh thinks that he can enlist the goodness and compassion of God and yet nothing changes in his life. He thinks he keep going to God, okay, okay, pray for me. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. And then relief happens, but there's no real change. He keeps making a promise to Moses, and he promptly takes back the promise. Now, this is the way it goes for many of us. I've seen this so often in pastoral ministry. It saddens me. When people have a complete life breakdown, and they go to God, and God does something where there's relief. And as soon as there's relief, they walk away. And the place of crisis, we resolve to make important changes in our lives that are responsible, that are healing, that are godly. However, when the pressure lifts, the costly changes are frequently seen to be either like, not practical or not necessary. My testimony consists of two times this happened to me. I didn't grow up in church, as you may know. Um, my first, when I was a freshman in high school, my first little uh, dipping myself into drugs, I got massively sick, where I was um, like hugging a toilet of a public bathroom for a few hours, and I prayed to God. I think this was the first time I remember praying to God. Now, God, um, I will serve you for the rest of my life if you make this stop. And it stopped. Eventually it stopped. (laughs) And I didn't change. I went on doing what I did. And the next time it happened, only like uh, maybe a year later, two years later. Next time I got randomly pulled aside at an event I was at for a random drug search. And I actually had drugs on me. And as soon as the police pulled me aside, um, I said, God, I think this is the second time I remember praying, um, 
uh, if you get me through this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And I got through it. I didn't get arrested. Uh, but, it would, but I didn't change anything. It would actually be a, a couple years later until God finally brought me to my knees. God is relentless. He knows just how to keep the pressure on. He knows how to bring us to our knees and to break the cycle of oppression and pain caused by us or by others toward us. And the sad thing is this, is that this narrative, I can actually relate to this narrative. I can relate probably as much to Pharaoh than Israel. I have a both in my heart. I'm, I can be Pharaoh all the time. I can be like, God, would you just do this thing and save me from this stuff? And <clears throat> I repent of this. And then a week later, relief comes. And I'm like, what did I say? I don't really remember. Let's move on. <clears throat> the next plague is where the narrative takes another turn. This is when God sends gnats on the land of Pharaoh. Um, and again, Pharaoh summons his technicians. And look at this. Gnats <clears throat> everywhere. It says, the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, but they could not. Ah, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, this is a really cool twist of fate. The, the, the word used of trying to, uh, trying to get the gnats out, they were actually trying to remove the gnats. Um, they tried to produce gnats, they couldn't produce them. They tried to remove the gnats and they couldn't. They tried to actually bring an exodus to the gnats and they couldn't do it. This is the end of their power. It says, since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is what his, the, his best men, Pharaoh's best men said, listen, we've reached the end of our power. We can't do anything else. We can't do this one. God, this is the finger of God. This is a power beyond our power, and it's being unleashed, and we cannot match it. And there's no doubt about it that, that God, what God is about to do is unfurl from here all of his judgment. God's finger will soon turn into his whole arm. The arm of God, the outstretched arm of God will save Israel. And there's no one in here that has a problem, I think, with the love of God. I think most of us as modern people with a modern worldview, we've come to expect the love of God. What we have a hard time with is the judgment of God. We all have a hard time with that. God's judgment on the world is God's enacting justice on the world. Judgment and justice are interlinked. When God acts in his judgment, he acts justly. He's acting and enacting justice on the world. So it's, it's when God acts to make the world right. And that is actually a part of God's love. Nicholas uh, Wolterstroff, I think that's how you say his last name. Anyone? No one? Okay. Says this. God loves the presence of justice in society, not because it makes for a uh, society whose excellence God admires, but because God loves the members of society, loves them, with a love of benevolent desire. God desires that each and every human being shall flourish, what the Old Testament writers call shalom. This is why God loves justice. God desires the flourishing of each and every one of God's human creatures. Justice is indispensable to that. Love and justice are not pitted against each other, but are intertwined. God's love and his justice, even in the forms of judgment, are not opposites in tension, but are two sides of the same coin. So, God's love is more than comfort. It's also confrontation. Confrontation. 
God's love isn't just like, oh, let me hold you. Let me. It's also confrontation. It's also getting in front of the things that are unjust in the world or unjust in our own lives or us and confronting us. God's love has teeth. Or in the Exodus language, God's love has a finger or an outstretched arm. Injustice, like the injustice that was committed by the Pharaoh, violates God's love for the world. Actually, later on, it says that the, the, when, when, God, when Israelites move into Canaan, Canaan, the land of Canaan, vomits, was vomiting them out of their mouth, out of its mouth. Like, it was vomiting the inhabitants out of its mouth. Like, the land can't, the, can't sustain the injustice of these, of these people. And God stands against anything that would stand in the way of the way he created the world. We very easily read stories like this and put ourselves in the place of Israel. All the time we do this. We read the Exodus story and we're like, we're like Israel, we're in bondage, we need freedom. But what if we're Pharaoh? I mean, we are the most powerful nation in the world. We do exercise our might all over the world. What if we're like Pharaoh? We live in the most, one of the most technologically advanced cities in the world. We like create the stuff that the world uses in San Francisco. What if we're more like, what if we're not really oppressed as much as we are the oppressors? What if we're the perpetrators? What if we're the one who has violated people with our lust? What if we're the ones that raped? What if we're the, ones that, we're the ones that have taken advantage of an employee or has abused people with our lives? What if we're the ones with hard hearts? What if we're the ones that are abusing the grace and the kindness of God? If that is true, then God stands against us. We always think God is for us. We always think, well, no, no, God is, no, God is totally for us. No, if you are committing injustice, if you are committing heinous acts of, of injustice with your body, with your lives, with your mouth, with your money, then God stands against you. He just, he does. He stands against you. God stands against our injustice. God reaches a point where he says, that's enough. We sing the song. We say these things that God is slow to anger. Is God slow to anger? Absolutely, but he eventually gets there. He will get angry. He's slow to it. He's abounding in love and steadfast love and kindness, but he's slow to anger, meaning he has it. Pharaoh used up all of it, all of his patience, and he's like, Pharaoh, that'll be enough. You will let my people go, and I will make a spectacle of you because you have a hard heart. You keep on oppressing. You keep on murdering. You keep, I'm going to show you that I am the Lord, and I will not tolerate this. I will not stand this. And we always think, yeah, get him, God, but what if we're those people? What if God has to square us up and say, you know what, that's enough. That's enough abusing my grace. Every Sunday it feels like you have this experience, but you're abusing, at this point you're abusing it because you're, no, you're not aligning your life with the life I've saved you to live. You're still acting unjustly. Pharaoh has a hard heart. And God is fighting for Israel because of his hard heart. But not so much in the distant future from here. God will actually fight against Israel as well. He will fight against them and he will tell Israel, your heart is hard. That's supposed to be a dig, by the way. 
It's supposed to be like a, the prophets would say, hey, Israel, your heart, God told me to say that your heart's hard. Everybody's supposed to go, oh my gosh, he just called us Pharaoh. You're saying that we're Pharaoh? And God's like, yeah, you're Pharaoh. Your heart is hard. But Jeremiah the prophet say, there's one day where I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you a new heart so you can actually obey me because this whole thing that you're, you think that you're obeying me, but you're not. I'll, I'll, I'll make it to where, I'll make it to where you can. If the exodus was God delivering Israel out of evil, God will eventually have to drive evil out of Israel. He will eventually have to drive evil out of us. And the ministry of Jesus is this very kind of thing. The ministry of Jesus shows up, and Jesus literally starts to go after demonic strongholds. He starts freeing people from oppression, spiritual oppression, um, a, a physical oppression, physical ailments. He starts to um, uh, talk to the most powerful people at that time, the religious leaders that were holding people under uh, systematic bondage. And he starts to confront them. And he starts to free, and they start to get angry at him. And it's ironic because now the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders have become like a Pharaoh, keeping their people in bondage. And Jesus is against them. If you don't think that God can be against you, the most trusted religious leaders at this time, Jesus was against. And Jesus shows up and he starts casting out demons and they don't know what to do with Jesus. And eventually they say, you know what, I think I, I, we th one, uh, like the, the um, leading theory was, you know how Jesus is casting out all these demons? Uh, he must have a demon himself. He must have a really powerful demon and he's using demons to cast out demons. He's using the prince of demons, Beelzebub. That's how he's casting out demons. And Jesus is like, that makes no sense. If, if I'm casting out demons by a demon, then the house is divided against itself, and any house divided against itself can't stand. He goes, you want to know what's happening? That's what he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. He says, this is the finger of God. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. By the way, this is a direct reference to Exodus. Do you guys see that? What, what, was, what, what, would, what, did the, what did the magicians say? This is the finger of God. Like, we can't do anything here. This is God doing this. this. God is driving us out. God is bringing about the, this judgment. Jesus is using the same language. If by, I drive out demons by the finger of God because the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is here to bring deliverance in all of its forms. Jesus' ministry began like this. This is Exodus language, and this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have as we stand before God, and I hope tonight... We don't have hard hearts. We have self-reflective hearts. God, search me and know me. Is there any ways that I'm abusing your grace, that I see your grace is cheap, that I've come here for some quick, very cheap, cathartic thing where I don't plan and intend on walking this out? Is my heart hard in that I'm not self-reflective anymore? Is my heart hard in that, in that I'm actually the person standing between you and justice, and I'm standing here, and I'm actually the one being unjust? Is there a way that I'm abusing my power and using it in ways that are binding people to things? This is where, this is our opportunity here tonight with the judgment here just kind of looming in our text. It's right here before us to search our, ask God to search us, to know us, to go, God, is there any way that I, I'm, I'm, my heart is hardened? Is there any way that, that that I, I might be uh, living under your judgment. The, the, if, you're, if, if you have this question about, okay, what, how do I know if it's judgment and how do I know if like, God is, 
disciplining me or refining me like, like James talks about or Peter or Hebrews 12 talks about it, like discipline and refine. Like what's the difference between those two? How do I know this might be the judgment of God, like Romans 1 type of judgment? How do I know? One way you can know is what's going on in your heart. I, I feel like here it says anyways, if your judgment seems to like drive us to harden our hearts. If we're like Pharaoh, we're under the judgment of God, that just like somehow hardens us makes us angry at everyone and everything. The refinement of God softens us, makes us pliable, makes us useful. Um, A soft heart, a hard heart versus a soft heart is a soft heart can be molded. A refiner's fire, when something goes in the fire, the impurities pull off and then the metal softens and God can shape it into what it wants. Maybe or not that's where you're at. Like, I, I I don't know if it's judgment or refining. Are you pliable? Are you moldable? Are you, could you stand before God and go, search me and know me and remake my heart? Make my heart a soft heart that can be, be shaped by you. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you that we're faced with such um, uh, an important text, but it also an intense text. And I ask God that we would be uh, self-reflective now. We say with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any wicked way within me. Come, Holy Spirit. May the ministry of the Spirit tonight bring a pliable, moldable, um, fire to our hearts tonight. For the hard hearts in this room that have hardened over sin's deceitfulness, may you smash through those hearts tonight, God. Break up the fallow ground. Make our hearts tender to receive the seed of the Spirit, the seed of the Word tonight. Break it up, God. And I pray that if we are feeling somewhat of a sorrow, it would be a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, not a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And for those that I know, Lord, I know that when you called me, eventually you got my attention and you said, Dave, that's enough. That's enough. The life that you're living will lend to death. That's enough. I know that, I know that those, those, those sometimes it comes to that, God, where you would look someone and out of love, look at them in the eyes and say, that is enough. That is enough of that sort of life. That is enough of that sort of destruction. That is enough of that sort of self-destruction or destroying another person. That's enough. Turn and repent now. And when we turn and repent, we see the other side, the loving side of God, the side that is willing to welcome us, the side that's willing to free us and your anger, um, gosh, in your anger, God, it's a scary thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's scary. So I pray you fill us with holy fear and, and 
and sober reflection tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.